There's a question on the, my podium uh, asking, why do we not say the confessional prayer at the 9 o'clock service? So I'll just answer that and say some things about the confession, the general confession. Uh, during Eastertide, the great 50 days of Easter, we don't say the confession at the beginning of the Mass because the, the emphasis in Easter is definitely not penitential. And so the issue of, uh, of suspending it is to not sort of uh, uh, dilute the joyful celebration that is being expressed in our liturgical life. We also do not say the, confess the general confession uh, during uh, the first, during the two, two or three weeks of Christmas time, so we don't do, don't do that then. But otherwise, we say it, and for the Green Sundays, we say it. At St. Luke's, we we do also what the prayer book permits us to do, the rubrics of the prayer book, and that is to put the confession at the beginning. Uh, it also occurs in the middle of the liturgy. Uh, before the peace or somewhere in there where it is often said by many people, which to me is the least appropriate time to do that. And for those in Anglo-Catholic parishes, uh, prior to the uh, revision of the prayer book, uh, there was something that was done in the old mass called the preparation at the foot of the altar, the confidior. And the priest and the acolytes would come to the step and they would begin to say this confession to themselves. And in some places, the congregation would join in. And that may be, some of you may remember, where the priest leaned over and went this way to the two, the two acolytes. Who, and to you, my brothers, you know, that sort of thing that I've sinned by my own fault, by my own fault, by my, you know. So, therefore, we, we you know, so we don't do that anymore, but it has echoes of, of that traditional part, and I suspect that's why uh, in the revisers allowed this to, to be done in either place. There are some places that don't do the confession very much at all, except maybe in Lent, but uh, I think uh, it's been hallowed by usage, and many people find it useful. The other big question amongst the people is whether or not the general confession counts as an actual confession and forgiveness for sins, or it must always be done uh, privately to a priest in auricular confession. So there are, there are issues about all of that. My personal view is, as a pastor for a long time now, looking out at the congregation when they say the general confession, I think they really mean it, and they really are making their confession, and they're really sorry. And so there is confession and absolution uh, in that context as well. So that's, uh, that's for that. This is the fourth Sunday uh, of Easter, and it's normally called Good Shepherd Sunday, because one of the Gospels we read always is about Jesus as the Good Shepherd. And this represents a, a switch of gears from the first three weeks of the Great 50 Days, where the emphasis on the Sunday readings is the resurrection appearances and the focus on uh, Jesus' resurrection and how the church uh, came to terms with that and uh, the opportunity to say that there are plural ways of understanding the resurrection uh, and plural ways in which the people who were the eyewitnesses reported what they experienced. So that always affords the opportunity for the church to continue the conversation 
uh, about that and the power of the resurrection as sort of the animating force for why we're here now 2,000 years later. So that's the thing. But today, we hear some things about the church's life, the church coming uh, to terms with their self-understanding as a messianic community and uh, as messengers of the power of the transforming work of Christ in them and the potential for that to be so for other people. And so we're reading once again from the book of Acts in the beginning, and we will read now through uh, the, East, the great 50 days of Easter from the book of Acts, which is really a wonderful rehearsal of the history of salvation and how we understand it. So I want to say a few things about the book of Acts um, and talk a little bit about what I was taught and how things have moved in various directions about the, the book of Acts to say some overall things about it, and then today, uh, what it says in the book of Acts and what, what happened. Maybe the most notable one is the, the comment that uh, uh, the community uh, took active care for one another and shared everything in common. So we might want to say a word about um, the primitive socialism of the early Christian community, and that's a hot topic in this country now, isn't it? <laughs> Creeping socialism. So uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that as well. When I was in seminary, um, most of my New Testament professors believed that it was not possible to preach from uh, the Acts of the Apostles because it was unreliable and uh, they had issues about the dates and about a variety of other things. And like the, the conversation about the bodily resurrection, I'd say in respectable biblical circles, not crackpot biblical circles, uh, there is a reassessment of the book of Acts. And so uh, that means that there's the belief that there is a core of history in this that we need to take seriously. The book of Acts was written between 60 and 64 A.D., um, if it were written later than that, it's curious that there is absolutely no mention of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem where some of this takes place. And Paul is still there in Jerusalem when the book of Acts is being written. And so that may be an argument for dating between 60 and 64 because Paul was martyred in 62 on the road between Ostia and Rome. There's a big church built where he was martyred uh, in Rome, St. Paul's outside the walls. So uh, we're talking then about something that may have predated, uh, although it's supposed to be volume two. Acts was written by Luke. Luke wrote Luke. Luke wrote Acts. There's some speculation that Luke uh, wrote volume three because the... The uh, book ends so abruptly at the end. Paul's in Rome and it's over. There's no, no further comment about this. Luke was probably written in about 75 or about 80. And if this was written in six, it's 18 years before uh, the writing of uh, the gospel. So those are all the questions that come into play uh, about this. And there are, of course, a number of others. 
But the purpose of the book of Acts uh, could be summed up as defending Christianity against the charge of political subversion, demonstrating the essential unity of the church in its worldwide mission, vindicating the part played by Paul. Uh, they put a, a very uh, good spin on the, on the controversies between Paul and the Jerusalem church. And there's a, a great attempt to reconcile what is said, uh, what, what they believe that Paul and the Jerusalem church agreed to and that there was harmonious relations between them. If you read the epistle to the Galatians, you will see that Paul has a different view of this matter. And when he was converted, he uh, said he didn't go to Jerusalem directly. He went to Arabia, and he was there for this amount of time, and then he came to Jerusalem. But also in Galatians, he claims that he sat down with the uh, Jerusalem church, the, the apostles in Jerusalem, and asked them, uh, is what I have been saying okay? Do you have any problem with this? And he claims they said, no, on all points, we agree. So it gives us some idea that there is, was maybe more agreement than we like. I think a lot of scholarship and a lot of the world we live in now would prefer it always to be complex. There, there are a great many things that everybody wants to say, well, you know, the whole thing was a, just a stew, and we just don't know. But... Uh, and the final point is to give a picture of what Christianity is and how the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Rome. So it's a picture of the church on its best behavior, I think, uh, in, the, in the book of Acts. And so in today's reading, here are some of the themes that we get uh, or earmarks of what the church might be like. My own personal belief in reading rereading Acts recently is that um, this is a picture of the church at its best, but when the church has behaved like that, they've done great things. You know, it's sort of like Gandhi said, Christianity is uh, a great idea. It's a shame it's never been tried. <laughs> you know, so when it has been tried, uh, it has often been extremely successful. So in the reading today, they... Uh, Luke talks about the church uh, being absorbed in religious teaching, understanding that all Christian people need to be students of the deep things of Christian faith and belief. You know, that's part of the mystical path that I've talked about before, of purgation, emptying, study, discipline, patience. So study means being a student of the deep things of Christian faith and belief. Read your Bible sometimes, understand the liturgy. If you're interested in certain uh, theological or ethical issues or uh, how Christianity bears on science and all of those things, you should follow that up. And you should become uh, more aware of those things than you did before. And it appears that in the early church, that was something that uh, was important, that they began to uh, understand the nature of the tradition with a capital T. Many years ago, this sounds way off the subject, I married one of um, Werner Earhart's uh, associates. Do you know who he was? The founder of Est. So I 
I married him. I'm married already, but I married him and he and his wife at Christchurch Sausalito. And Werner was there. And apparently in Est, there was, I don't know if Est even exists anymore, there was a thing when he had some sort of a conversation or maybe a conflict, mild or whatever. They kept asking, does this work for you? Does this work for you? And I think a lot of our own uh, uh, spiritual path uh, maybe is a little bit too caught up with whether it works for me. I've said this to you before because uh, when I became an Episcopalian in my late teens, I realized that I had joined myself to something that was way bigger than me, way bigger than me. And so while how I came to this and how it impacted my emotional, spiritual, and mental states was certainly important, and I could and cannot ever let that go completely. But at the same time, I realized that there may be some things that are true, whether or not David Brewer believes they're true. (laughs) That's not the final arbiter in this whole matter. So uh, I don't say that to be uh, nasty, but it sometimes uh, is, is worth saying. They seem to be having regular fellowship. This is being described in social and religious settings. And uh, it means that they had a community uh, that uh, interacted with one another and uh, worshipped together and uh, saw one another outside of that. It was also a community that had active care for one another. And it's characterized in today's reading uh, about how they shared all things in common. Why being a student of the Bible is important is that we also know about Luke, who, where he was from, he was a Gentile Christian. He was not a Jew. And the formative cultural and uh, philosophical outlook for somebody like Luke and in the environment he uh, grew up in was the Greek world, the Hellenistic world. And so he was in no, no doubt familiar with poetry, with other writings by uh, the Greek philosophers and the playwrights and so forth, and proverbs that would be in Greek that come from the Greek culture. And there is one that says, for friends, all things are common. So the common sharing and generosity uh, amongst one another was a feature of that life. And when they were looking in in their own cultural outlook as they became Christians, what would be the appropriate way? Well, we have, a, we have cultural experience and knowledge and understanding of this kind of um, generosity sharing with one another. So holding all things in common was the way it appears in the Jerusalem church was uh, the case. Now, here's the other piece. We have no hard evidence that this form of community life in this Christian community was universally practiced in other Christian communities, right? Other Christian communities may not have held all their property in common or may have done it in some other way, but it does also seem that the default position is everybody was erring on the side of generosity, and that was what was compelling about Christian people. In the third century CE, 
There was, uh, I'm, I'm taking this from a book that I would recommend. It's written about 20 years ago now by a sociologist named Rodney Stark. And Rodney Stark wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. He's a sociologist. And when I was in seminary, he and another guy named Glauck, G-L-A-U-C-K, I think, wrote a book called American Piety in about 1972. And it was two sociologists who had done one of their sociological things that you do if you're a sociologist and talk to people about their spiritual experiences or their ex experience of the presence of God. And about 85% of the people in the survey said that at least once in their life they have had a direct experience of the presence of God in their life, even if it was a nanosecond that they had had this kind of experience. So the book was called American Piety, and needless to say, it was influential in, in uh, religious and academic circles then. But he wrote this book, The Rise of Christianity, because he wanted to f see if he could, as using the disciplines of sociology, whether or not he could discover why it appears in the biblical witness and other places, Eusebius, the first church historian, they talked about the exponential growth of the Christian church. And he thought, how might we as modern people be able to get back there historically and see whether there were some reasons why this was so and that they didn't cook the books, right? Because that's always the big question. Uh, and, you know, in, in, a, in a world now where we're operating 24-7 on a hermeneutic of suspicion, it's important that we have some idea of whether or not people cook the books. So he looked into this and he began to get examples of places where the church grew very rapidly. And in the 200s, in Antioch, which was then one of the largest cities, you know, it's in Turkey uh, there was a plague. I may have mentioned this before. And in Antioch, people were dying of the plague like flies. And the most prominent physician in the whole of the Roman Empire lived in Antioch, was staying in Antioch. And when the plague happened, he fled the city. And... Uh, the, the response then was, he's smart, he's need, we need him, get him out of here. He doesn't need to stay. But the Christians did stay, and they looked after the people who were sick, and a number of them got sick and died of the plague. But the, impress, the, the, the effect that had on the non-Christians in Antioch was very great. And it's cited in, in Stark's book and in other places as one of the locations for the dramatic growth of the Christian church because of their example. So it's easy to suppose that in, in the book of Acts, when some of these things are happening, it uh, has a positive effect too. The next thing that we get from what is said today in the reading is the continuing steadfastly in prayer, that prayer was important to uh, the Jerusalem church uh, to the early Christians and continues to be. And this can be understood uh, not as people entering into a Father Keating centering prayer kind of thing, but that they went to the liturgy uh, and they prayed publicly and, and so on and privately. 
And they did that on a regular basis with some intention. And then, of course, because it's Luke, who is the great theologian of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, he talks about the fact that uh, there is a generosity of spirit, the animating factor in human beings, which uh, helps us to uh, be God's people in the world. So, you know, that's something that, that is uh, helpful, and uh, we understand that. Um, we don't say this enough during Eastertide, but much of the new writing and research and scholarship on the New Testament, on the New Testament church, indicates that the early Christians understood Jesus as the new model of a human being. So that meant that what they had seen in him, in his words and in his works, was the perfection of humanity. And that that was not some remote thing that only he had, and he was in some, at some remove from all of them. But that he, had, he had given them tools they could use. And so Christian people said, I want to live into this new model of humanity. And this is what I have been given uh, through the Savior's teaching, preaching, and example. And that's what you see in, in the, this reading from Acts. Uh, when I was in seminary, the, the reading we read today uh, about the Good Shepherd, um, I think it's chapter 8, verses 1 through 10, or 10, uh, that it was my, in Greek, I had to translate that into English as my test. And I'll just tell you in advance, I made a complete pig's breakfast out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so when I gave it to Father Edwards, it was in class, he just did it in the blue book, he made translation. He went up and I handed it to him and he opened it up. And he said, David, you are taking Greek next semester, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yes, Father Edwards, I'm going to take it. I am. Yes, I am. Good. Well, fine. But uh, it, was, it was tough, I'll say. And just to let you know, if you're, if you're learning Greek, the, the easiest Greek in, in the New Testament, I think, is John. It's, it's, it wasn't his first language, so it's sort of English is a second language Greek, you know. So it, it was, uh, that was added insult to injury in the middle of all of that. The thing that I'm concerned about mainly because it's so much part of the, the discussion now in Christianity and in, in the West, for sure, and, and that is that in today's reading, Jesus makes some comments about the exclusive nature of Christianity and about, you know, nobody gets in except through me, you know. No one comes to the Father except through me, he says in other places. You know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So that has been interpreted by many for a long time, for 2,000 years to mean that unless you are a Christian and you believe in Jesus, you will not uh, be able to get into the kingdom of heaven. You're, you're out. So I thought maybe I should say some stuff about that because, you know, for me, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I wish to commend that to other people and say that that belief is my greatest place of safety and assurance. Now, how I operate in relation, in relation to others 
who don't share that view at this point or maybe ever. Um, how am I to understand uh, God's presence in this? Because that makes God a separator and not a, a uniter. John McQuarrie, uh, a, a famous theologian in the 20th century, one of the most famous in our tradition, uh, said this about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and how we might understand this. I would have to say that the word unique is not helpful in discussing the place of Jesus Christ. Not only Jesus Christ, but every person is unique. And therefore, so is Muhammad and so is Gautama Buddha. In place of the words rejected, unique, final, absolute, I shall use the expression definitive for Jesus as understood in Christian faith. He is definitive in the sense that for Christians he defines in normative fashion both the nature of humanity, which he has brought to a new level, and the nature of God, for the divine logos expressive being has found its fullest expression in him. This is an affirmation of faith made from within history and not an attempt to pronounce from some vantage point above history. As such, uh, it is content to make an affirmation about Christ and to refrain from negative judgments concerning the truth in other faiths. It recognizes that while Christ possesses fullness and a definitive status, our apprehension of that fullness is always imperfect. So that should be the starting place for how we, we come to this, in my view. At the end of today's gospel, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And it connects to the reading in the book of Acts because the way the, the, way the early church, the church of the Acts of the Apostles understood this is the way they were doing it, they believed was the method by which you have the abundant life some form of uh, emotional, spiritual, and mental serenity as you meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of you. And it was not merely a pious sentiment. It was a felt confidence that they were instruments of God's purposes in the world. The earliest images of Jesus in Christian art is Jesus as the Good Shepherd. And those of you who've been to Italy have seen at Ravenna and some other places mosaics of Jesus with the, with the lamb on his shoulders. And uh, that in early Christianity was one of the dominant artistic expressions of, of Jesus. The earliest, expression, uh, the earliest example of Jesus on a cross, crucified, is on a door in a church across the street from where I stayed in Rome when I was a student at Pansione, right near the circuit where Ben-Hur ran his chariot race in the movie. And it's Santa Sabina Church. It's a fourth century church. And on the doors, the wooden doors, there's a panel about this big on the door to enter the church, and there's Jesus crucified. And it dates from about the fifth century. So that was not initially the dominant artistic expression of Jesus, but it was as Jesus the Good Shepherd, which uh, I think is an important thing. So this week, give thanks for the Good Shepherd, 
who knows his sheep by name and unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives them. And that constitutes our start. If that isn't an Easter message, I don't know what is. Amen.